Welcome to In the Green Chair, an interview series by Relay Education. In each episode, we sit down with a professional who's working in the green economy to learn about their story. I'm your host, Adi, and today I'm joined with my co-host, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Adi. Throughout the series, you'll hear from professionals across a wide range of fields and sectors who all work in what we consider to be a green-collar career. Today's guest in the green chair is Shivani Chotalia. She's the Manager for Engineering and Community Partnership at EnterStorage, which is an energy storage project developer based in Toronto. Hi, Shivani. Welcome to the green chair. Hi, Ada and Andrew. It's, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So for someone who's never heard of energy storage, in your own words, could you explain it and talk about the necessity of storing energy for later use? So energy storage, if you haven't heard of it, it's probably something that you're going to start he hearing a lot more about. Um, energy storage is exactly what it sounds like. So it's taking electricity and holding on to it and being able to store it, um, hold, taking it when it's, not, when it's not needed and then holding on to it for use when it is needed. Um, so the reason this is becoming more and more important is as we transition to a lower carbon electricity system, we're trying to incorporate a lot more renewable electricity into our energy system. So that's things like wind electricity, like solar um, energy, and those are things that are produced when the resource is available. So for example, your solar panel is gonna produce electricity when the sun is shining, um, but not at nighttime when there is no sun. And the wind, a wind turbine will produce electricity when the wind is blowing, um, but not necessarily when you're exactly when you're using that electricity. So having some inventory in the middle, being able to have a mechanism like energy storage to hold on to that electricity when sort of extra electricity is produced and then being able to use it exactly when we all need it and when we're all turning on our lights in the morning or coming home from work, actually we're all working from home. So, um, but being able to use electricity when it's needed. Um, and so you think about, if you think about sort of all of the different industries that are out there, if you think about a grocery store um, or our water systems, it, none of those things really work without having that inventory and having sort of buffer in the middle to be able to access that good exactly when it's needed. Um, electricity is actually very unique where we don't really have that inventory on the system already. There isn't actually a mechanism for storing electricity. We're trying to use every electron at the exact point in time when we're creating that electron. So um, when you're turning on your light, there is some sort of generation, whether it's a solar panel or, um, or a coal facility or a natural gas facility, there's something producing that electricity at the same time as you're using it. Um, so energy storage is really the buffer in the middle that'll help us transition to a much more efficient system um, and a much more renewable and low carbon system as well. So as the manager of engineering and community partnerships, what is the typical day at work for you? So, so Enerstore is a pretty small company still. So we've got about, um, about 10, 15 people on the team. And so everyone in the company sort of wears a lot of different hats. <laughs> and, and so my role definitely changes day to day. But a lot of what my role looks like is, is sort of managing, managing projects day to day. I get to work with the like, financing of projects with our community partners, working with different engineering firms or different suppliers to think about what needs to happen to get that project built, to go from an idea for a project to building a business model around it and then actually constructing it and operating it at the end of the day. 
What was a pivotal moment in your career where you experienced a big change? That's a good question. I have to think about that one a little bit. The start of my career is was an interesting time. I wanted to be in the clean tech industry and I wanted to be in energy specifically within that. And I wanted to be in a small enough company that I could make an impact on the company as well as a company that aligned with my values. I was quite lucky. I had the privilege of, of um, after university, I, I moved to Toronto and I stayed in the basement of an aunt and uncle's house for a little while. So, so I took my time and I didn't kind of get a job right away. And I eventually found Enerstore sort of through the startup ecosystem in Ontario. Um, but Enerstore at the time wasn't hiring. And since they weren't hiring, I sort of went through a process of kind of cold calling and, and uh, talking to some people on the team. And I eventually, I ended up putting together my own research of Tesla Powerwall product. Here's how I think it could be rolled out. And then eventually I, I volunteered at a conference that the, the CEO of the company, Annette Bersharin, was speaking at. And so I, I kind of abdicated my volunteer responsibilities a little bit and tried to just spend as much time talking to her as I could followed up by sending her my research and then was able to actually convince them to, to, to give me a chance and, and let me into the company. A lot of jobs that are out there are not necessarily, um, are not necessarily on a job board or are not necessarily um, like something that really already exists. And so it's okay to try to, to, I guess, like go and create your own opportunities. I love that you just did not give up. The job may not exist until you create it or you create a, a need for it. Just follow your curiosity of who do you want to talk to and who do you want to have genuine conversations with. And, and I think that that is sort of the best way to like network as well as just, just, uh, just talk about what you're interested in. Research is hugely important too. Maybe you didn't think that you'd leave your city. Don't be afraid to think outside of your region or your neighborhood or your city. That's a great point. And I think especially... Um, just the point about opportunities in different places. And now we're in a bit of a changed world with, with COVID that everyone is more comfortable with working virtually. It matters a lot less where you physically are. I want to hear a little bit more about yourself and your background as, as an engineer. How you decided to become an engineer? Like I, when I was applying to universities, I, I applied to engineering programs without even fully understanding what an engineer did. I knew yeah. it was a necessary job and, and they, you know, build and design things, but that was, that was kind of the extent of, of what I knew. So can you explain just to people who might be considering an engineering degree, what exactly engineers uh, do? Absolutely. So I had a similar experience to you, Andrew, where I, when I applied to engineering in university, I don't think I really knew what it was, um, but I was interested in math and science and I was interested in solving problems. So for me, I studied green process engineering which was very similar to chemical engineering, but a little bit more focused on the environmental side. Um, and, and I also actually studied business in my, in my undergraduate. So I did a dual degree um, at, at the University of Western Ontario in green process engineering as well as business. I think what really drew me to both engineering and business was that concept of solving, solving big problems. And for me, the big problem, and I think for, for all of us, for you as well, the big problem that we're all experiencing is, is climate change. And how do we, uh, how do, what can we do? What kinds of technologies are out there? What, we, what can we do to build our system differently to address, address that, that big issue of climate change? And I think through engineering, it gave me sort of access to very specific types of technologies and specific solutions to um, a big problem like climate change that you can sort of, sort of narrow down and focus on 
um, focus on the electricity and the energy system specifically, and then think about what are the solutions within within that world. Um, and and I and I got really excited about energy storage being sort of a a new and innovative solution. So I read that when you were younger, you would take machines apart and put them back together. <laughs> so it seems like you've always had that curiosity um, that engineers have to figure things out and problem solve. Did you always know you wanted to be an engineer? Was there some type of mentor or someone you looked up to that influenced that decision? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question as well. And to be honest, I, I definitely did not know that I wanted to be an engineer. I didn't really know what it was and I didn't really have many engineers as role models around me. So for me, it was a little bit of a process of elimination, kind of going from high school and looking at my options of what I could study. And I, I also really liked literature and English and I really liked, I, I was good at math and and it felt like, I think for me, looking at the options that were out there, engineering was a little bit unknown, but it felt like something that could could um, sort of provide a good a good base for for being able to then go into a lot of different places. And and I think that is very true. Like I've seen post-graduation, a lot of engineers who've, who've gone into a lot of different fields, they might go into more traditional engineering jobs or they might um, switch entirely and go into being uh, being a teacher. It really doesn't close any doors. It only opens more doors. Absolutely. There's so many forms of engineering and they can have you working outside. They could have you working just in front of a computer. They could have you building things. You could even work in um, heating and cooling of buildings. You could be a structural engineer. There's a lot of freedom in that. And I think there are programs where like your first year is foundational and then you can specify later on as you realize what you like. Another thing I wanted to ask you is what was your first job out of high school? My first job was really working in a restaurant in, in a small town in Quebec. It was a, a vegetarian restaurant like in the middle of nowhere. I did um, something called the Explore program, which is sort of put on through the federal government, which enables young people from Anglophone parts of the country to go and live in a small town in, in a Francophone part of the country, and vice versa for Francophones to live in an Anglophone town. I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, so I had always sort of been in cities, so it was, it was cool to sort of live in a small town. That was my first job. <laughs> but other than that, I actually spent a summer in university as well, working um, working in a university in China, again, through an opportunity I had through my university and uh, work with a PhD student in Zhejiang University on polymer engineering um, research. And so that was, that was again, a really neat, neat life experience to sort of travel across the world. I never really saw myself uh, going to China necessarily, but it was, uh, it was a really exciting opportunity to uh, sort of sort of go off on my own and spend a few months in another part of the world and, and also do some really neat work in the lab. That's cool. It seems like you really took advantage of the exchange opportunities that were there. I believe you were also part of Engineers Without Borders. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and, and some of the countries and projects that you, that you worked in? I was very involved with Engineers Without Borders throughout my university experience as well at, at um, Western University. And um, and so Engineers Without Borders is an international development organization, but it doesn't necessarily focus on technical engineering solutions. It sort of takes an engineering approach, a bigger picture approach to uh, international development issues. And so in my work with Engineers Without Borders, I actually was very focused around 
just our work around the campus and, and at Western, we we worked to become a certified fair trade campus and, and work with the university purchasing um, purchasing divisions. And in, on the international side, I actually didn't travel with Engineers Without Borders myself. EWB did really try to approach or does continue to, to approach development work from a, a very sort of respectful standpoint of, of, of not taking a sort of savior mentality of we're going to go and try to fix everything for everyone. And I did have a chance actually not with Engineers Without Borders, but with my uh, education in business with Ivy to actually go over to, to Ghana for, for a couple of months and um, work on case-based business teaching um, at a university in Ghana. And, and through my connections with Engineers Without Borders, I had had a few friends around the country, which I was able to sort of travel and meet up with, learn a little bit more from a local perspective about the country, which is really exciting. The energy storage that a lot of people know of is our, our batteries. But what are some other technologies out there that we can actually use to store energy? Yes, so there's all kinds of new energy storage technologies that are that are being sort of researched and developed every day. So we actually built the first uh, commercial flywheel energy storage facility in in Canada, and also the first commercial compressed air, fuel-free compressed air energy storage facility in the world. Actually, so I can give you a bit of detail on those technologies. If you think about a flywheel as a, a big metal cylinder that rotates, and so it stores energy kinetically. When you take electricity from the system to start the flywheel to, to get it rotating, and then it's in sort of a, a very like a vacuum sealed chamber, and so it keeps rotating and holds on to that energy um, until you need it. And so when you need the electricity again, it sort of decelerates the flywheel spinning um, and turns it back into electricity to go onto the grid. And then another technology is fuel-free compressed air energy storage. We're using uh, we're using electricity to uh, compress compress air, so just atmospheric air, um, so so no like harmful substances or anything, just air from from outside. And so that air is is compressed and then it's put down underground into um, a salt cavern. And then when we want to turn it back into electricity, essentially we release the air from the cavern and it goes through an expander um, and and then is turned back into electricity on the grid. That's interesting. So it sounds like there's some some energy storage solutions that are you, you could apply anywhere in the world, but then there's also some that are specific to the geography that you have, right? Because not not everywhere has has empty salt mines, but I guess if you do have them, that you, you have an opportunity to use it for um, first story energy, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly it. When you are storing the energy, how long does that energy actually last and how long can you hold on to it before you begin to lose it? That's a great question. So that's also associated with the size of storage that you have. And you'll hear something that's talked about in the energy storage world is duration of, of your energy storage. Um, and so that is if you have a if you have a battery that charges at one megawatt, for example, if you charge it for two hours, it gives you two megawatt hours of storage and people will call that a two hour duration battery. Um, so if you think about if you think about your house, if you think about um, there is a product called the Powerwall, which is a battery for your house, which is which is a product from Tesla. So if you think about that battery as almost like a bucket of water where you're charging it up from the grid with your you've got water flowing into it and then you've got it filled up with a whole bunch of energy. And then you have that amount of energy that you can take out of it 
over, um, over a full day or over two days or however long you, you can um, if you're taking small quantities out of it. If you're taking a lot out of it, it'll last a lot shorter. Yeah, that's a really important concept and something I'm still kind of working my head around is the whole kilowatt hour measurement. When you see a measurement on a battery, it says it's so-and-so megawatt hours. That's the duration. That is how you quantify how big that battery is. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of a, in the water analogy, that's the volume of how many liters of water you've got in there. And when you hear kilowatts, which is also very common, that's sort of the rate of flow of water into your bucket or the rate of flow of energy in or out of your battery. For some of the examples you, you shared, it sounds like you do need some energy to kind of get things started. Like with the, the flywheel, you need to use electricity from the grid or uh, for the pump storage, you need to store that, that air. Um, so where is that electricity coming from? Don't we, isn't, isn't the whole point of energy storage to be storing it for later use, not using energy in, in the first place? Energy storage is just the storage component. So there's no new generation. Um, there's no new electricity being created. It's all being taken from somewhere and then being held onto and then being used um, again. And so, so it can come from really any source. Obviously, we, we are also trying to shift away from, from fossil fuels and bring on a lot more renewable energy. So it might be solar energy that's generated and not needed at that exact point in time. But you're right, you're right also that there is energy being used in the energy storage process. And so if you put 100% of electricity in, you're not going to get 100% of electricity out. And it's different for different technologies. With every system, right, there's inefficiencies and there's energy loss. So, um, but that, that's a good point that rather than losing all of it, you, you still lose a little bit along the way, but you're able to, to still store the majority of it for later. How are you helping communities become self-sustainable in terms of energy? So, so Canada has about 200,000 people um, that are not connected to the electricity grid and are living in remote areas that, um, that are dependent on, on things like diesel fuel um, to power the, their communities. And so a majority of those communities are Indigenous communities and, and are um, located quite far away. So you really need energy storage. And that, that threshold is around, say, 20% of renewable energy. And so to get beyond that, you really need energy storage to be able to uh, integrate that renewable energy, store it when it's not being needed, um, and be able to, if, it, if a cloud comes over the solar panels, for example, or the wind drops down, be able to kind of pick up the, the load in half a second uh, or less even and, and quickly um, maintain the balance of the system. Often we do it as a 50-50 ownership approach where Enershore owns half of the project and the community owns half of the project. Any projects around the world that are really unique or any, any countries that are leading the way when it comes to energy storage? Yeah, I mean, so there's some really interesting, there's, other, there's all kinds of other energy storage technologies out there as well. There's something called gravity storage that was getting a bit of attention where you're essentially like picking up blocks and, and creating a tower with these blocks and then and then using these giant cranes to store electricity by by lifting the blocks up and then when the blocks are coming down using the gravity to be able to to create electricity there's a lot going on around the world actually and um, Australia is one country for example that has done quite a bit in terms of um, figuring out how their electricity system will 
um, will encourage more energy storage to be part of the system. There's also, there's a lot of jurisdictions in the United States that are doing this. Europe is also progressing in terms of energy storage deployments and developments. Now it, it sounds like it's, it makes sense on an economic side too, right? It's not just about making the planet, uh, you know, taking better care of, of nature, which is also, you know, obviously very important, but it also saves companies money and, and saves the, the provinces and those municipalities money too, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's both. And we, I think we definitely consider ourselves a green company as well in the sense of that's definitely a big part of our, our sort of vision and mission. Yeah, it even has me thinking about 20, 30 years from now, small businesses have their own solar panel with their own battery and then all of their operations is powered by the sun. I think so. And I, oh, I think it's a combination. Like I think there, there are benefits to being interconnected to each other as well. So if I'm producing extra, extra solar energy on my roof, I can sell it to my neighbor down the street um, and vice versa. If, if, they're, if, I, if they have a, a, a battery and they can, they can hold on to my solar energy and sell it back to me when I need it again, <laughs> like there, I think there's gonna be a lot more sort of two-way interaction. Yeah, actually that is a great point because we do have to consider, you know, flooding, natural disasters. If that happens to someone in a neighboring town, the community can band together and support them by saying, we have some stored energy, let's help you out. Yeah, and I think we're already seeing it happen as well. Like if in down in California, with some of the wildfires that were happening, they were experiencing a lot of outages in houses. And so the utility is now implementing systems to uh, encourage more people to have batteries in their homes. I think we're seeing more programs like that being rolled out in response to some of the natural disasters that we're seeing, unfortunately. Do you see any main areas that are in need of, of, of young people to, to kind of fill those, those gaps? I guess just expanding it from energy. Like, I think there's a lot of opportunity in energy storage and we're going to need people to play all those different roles in, in trades in engineering and um, in business in in advocacy. Talk about sort of green careers. Like, I, I think that's, that's going to be extended to all careers. I think that's really the opportunity for young people is whatever your passion is, um, bring that lens to it of how do I do this in a way that's that's good for the environment and good for the world. Do you have any books that inspired you about energy storage or renewable energy or engineering? Yeah, so I have one. Um, it's not specifically about energy storage, but it's called Cradle to Cradle. Um, it's more about sort of design thinking around sustainability principles. How do we design our products and how do we design processes and, and companies around this mentality of thinking a little more deeply about the materials we're using, about the purposes of how we're using them um, and how they'll be used after after we're, we're done with them as well. A lot of great information there. And, and thank you for, for, uh, for spending the time with us and, and chatting about energy storage and your experience. Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, it was really fantastic to be a part of this this series, and appreciate uh, appreciate the conversation. Thank you for sitting in the green chair with us today. For anyone who wants to keep track with what Enerstore is up to, where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So Enerstore's website is www.nrstor.com. So you can definitely check out more about our projects and and our company overall there. Um, and then I, I feel free to reach out to me. I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn with just my name. You could find me and, and feel free to reach out. We hope you enjoyed learning about the different paths people take to working in the green economy. 
Follow us on social media at Relay Education and check out our website, relayeducation.com, to learn more. 